go, that's where you always go. I'm banging on your door up in the big blue sky. We're back with the second podcast on W.E.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. This section, we've got a bunch of chapters that are not exactly case studies, but are um, elaborations or instances or examples and illustrations of the themes that were set out in the chapter we read last time, or the chapters, excuse me, that we talked about last time. Um, So we'll just kick it off here. You want to start us off, Heather? Yeah. We're eating a little popcorn, so apologies if there's a little crunch. Sorry. We had uh, smoothies and oatmeal for dinner and really just hasn't stuck with us. All right, first quote, page 90. A resistless, resistless feeling mm-hmm. of depression falls slowly upon us. Despite the gaudy sunshine and the green cotton fields, this then is the cotton kingdom, the shadow of a marvelous dream. And where's the king? Perhaps this is he, the sweating plowman tilling his 80 acres with two lean mules and fighting a hard battle with debt. So Du Bois has gone on a trip to southwestern Georgia from Atlanta. So he's ridden from Atlanta to southwest Georgia. It is part of his project of documenting um, in statistical detail the lives of black folks throughout the United States. Um, since so many of them lived in the South in these years, this he took this trip in 1898 um, that he's writing about here. Um, since so many black people remained in the South, this is before the great migration of World War I. He spent a lot of time when classes were not in session at Atlanta University, touring Alabama, Mississippi, the black belt of Georgia. So. This is kind of rhetorical. Um, he's writing kind of as a journalist here, right? Yes. But this sounds, is this is a journalistic, journalistic report on academic investigation. Okay. Right? So sure. The, there's a lot of scenes here where he conjures the South, pictures of the South. I think the next one you have maybe one of those. All right. I'll go ahead and read it. Page ninety-two. We turn now to the west along the county line. Great dismantled trunks of pines tower above the green cotton fields, cracking their naked gnarled fingers toward the border of living forest beyond. There is little beauty in this region, 
only a sort of crude abandon that suggests power, a naked grandeur as it was, as it were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get lots of these colorful details of what the South is like, especially Mm -hmm. the low country of Georgia, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, that kind of stuff. It's just, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Just a little travelogue to the south. Right, setting the stage. Setting the been. scene, setting the stage. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we do have to talk about one thing, though. As you were reading along, you might have been uh, taken aback by some passages that you read that maybe began like this on page 96. The Jew is the heir of the slave baron in Doherty. Doherty County. Okay. Uh, Where are you going with this, Dubois? As we ride westward by wide-stretching cornfields and stubby orchards of peach and pear, we see on all sides within the circle of dark forest a land of Canaan. Here and there are tales of projects for money-getting, born in the swift days of reconstruction. Improvement companies, wine companies, mills and factories. Nearly all failed, and the Jew fell heir. Yikes! Yikes! What's going on here? What's some, going on some here? Definitely, definite stereotypes of the Jewish banker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of that, and there's not just that. Um, you'll see other passages where he says, you know, only a Yankee or a Jew could have squeezed more money out of this. Right. I mean, it's right. It's tricky. Um, it's a little jarring. Sure. Um, and, um, it's hard to think about what to do with it, you know, as a reader. Yes. Uh, fortunately, Jason sent me this article all about it. It was a fascinating article about, um, uh, Jason, a student, you know, you, maybe you're not in that class with Jason, but you, he, he, yeah. Anyway, he sent me this great article all about these anti-Semitic references throughout the souls of black folk. Du Bois's most commonly taught text, Du Bois's most famous text. It was a really interesting article that talks about the way that Du Bois later in life in 1950s when he is, um, you know, starting to prepare kind of his legacy of written work, is working with his editor and says, we got to take this out of here. Like, I don't want to be energizing that. That's not what I think. That's not what I believe. And I want to change that. And so in the 1953 edition of Souls of Black Folk, all of those references were systematically changed in this, in this, mm-hmm. um, in this text and in this chapter particularly. And so um, what's fascinating, though, is that that's not the most common reproduction of du- the 1903 text is the one that's most commonly reproduced. So the guy who the guy who has um, who had written the introduction for this Penguin edition, right, is like this extremely radical black intellectual who, I mean, look, I've taught Souls of Black Folk for years. I learned this from Jason's article all about this, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, no one knows this stuff, mm-hmm. right? And, like, it's there in the 1953 text. And if Penguin Press and if Oxford Press and if all of these companies would just, just do what use the 1953 yeah. text, which Du Bois wanted, it would be, you know... A different text and like uh, you could of course 
if you're doing a scholarly edition, have footnotes that explain this. Right, and that tell this, this had been purged be and that he had to change. Yeah, that's fascinating little yeah. piece of stuff, a piece of history, a, a nice teachable moment, if you will. Right. And yet we are deprived of that. And then as a reader, you might come across this and be like, fuck, weird, right? Or like, you might be like, you know, have internalized you know, anti-Semitism in your own shit and be like, oh, cool, I guess that's normal. Like, someone smart as Du Bois is saying anti-Semitic shit. Or, right. like, you might feel, like, really targeted by that and right. really triggered by that. Like, all of these things could be avoided if we just use the 1953 text. Right, which he preferred. Which Du Bois by the end of his life. preferred and deliberately made changes to and described as changes in his, you know, thinking, his ethos, and his outlook. Now, right. here's the cool part, though. I saved this for you, Heather. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Do you want to know? So Du Bois wrote this piece for a journal called World's Work. Okay. Okay. It had a, a, a run from 1901 to 1932. Mm-hmm. It was a conservative pro-business publication. Okay. It was... Um, so right, he's writing for like the business page. This is like the Wall Street Journal of the day, okay. or the maybe not the I mean, probably like the Economist magazine, conservative paper. Okay. Um, do you want to know the, per the the person's name who edited this? Who was the editor at the time? Definitely. Walter Hines Page. The oh, of my high school. Of your that's high school. very funny. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's hilarious. Who was uh, a major, this is the part that I thought you would also like, Walter Hines Page was the ambassador to Britain during the um, Wilson administration and was part of the same kinds of networks that were interested in um, restricting immigration to the United States, mm -hmm. um, were, was sort of palling around with people like Ella Hugh Root, right, and, right, right. Uh, of Hamilton's own Ella Hugh Root, right. um, and... You know, so like Du Bois is writing this for a conservative publication edited by someone who really is against immigration. Mm -hmm. To be against immigration in the late 19th century is to be anti-Semitic, right? It's mm -hmm. like that's a lot of immigrants are coming from Eastern, Southern Europe, from uh, Far Eastern, from Russia, right? So like uh -huh. when he's talking about when he's talking about Jews in this, right? What's partly in right, circulating in the air is like also immigration, also. right? Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. so Du Bois is writing this for a publication that's got this whole bent, to this it. whole bent yeah, to yeah. it already, right? And so this is partly coming along with that. It's part of the right. part of yeah, the world yeah. that he's swimming in. And also, your high school was named after that yeah. guy. <laughs> Aren't you even happier that you didn't finish there? Yes, yeah, I didn't. I didn't graduate from high school. If you guys, I uh, think. I think that's, I thought that was a really awesome thing that I discovered. That's amazing. It's totally amazing. I thought amazing. you'd like that. I, I thought you'd like that. Okay. So. I also hadn't thought of those, that, those three names together. Right. I mean, A, I don't think I even thought of that as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I don't page, know how you guys pirates. thought about your uh, high school, but I certainly didn't think much about that guy as a, uh, yeah, as That's a right. person, right? It's just as the name of the high school, and like, yeah, I saw it on the sign. It, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's sort of funny mm -hmm. to think mm -hmm. about. There you go. All right, All right. keep us keep us moving here. So, keep moving. so this this, so this whole chapter an, an enormous quote, and I feel like I can't eat the popcorn because I feel like I'm just chewing loudly. Just chewing loudly into the microphone. Yeah. So now I just we have to go, go quick so that I. All can, right, we'll move. We'll so move I fast. Can snack. We'll move fast. 
drink my, I'll still drink my tea. That's quiet. That is quiet. All right. All right, 101. There we sat after a long, hot drive, drinking cool water. The talkative little storekeeper who is my daily companion, the silent old black woman patching pantaloons and saying never a word, the ragged picture of helpless misfortune who called in just to see the preacher, and finally the neat matronly preacher's wife, plump, yellow, and intelligent. Own land, said the wife. Well, only this house. Then she added quietly, we did buy 700 acres up yonder and paid for it, but they cheated us out of it. Sells was the owner. Sells, echoed the ragged misfortune, who was leaning against the balustrade and listening. He's a regular cheat. I worked for him 37 days this spring, and he paid me in cardboard checks, which were to be cashed at the end of the month. But he never cashed them, kept putting me off. Then the sheriff came and took my mule and corn and furniture. Furniture? I asked. But furniture is exempt from seizure by law. Well, he took it just the same, said the hard-faced man. There you go. So there what, you go. what Du Bois is doing in this chapter is, and why he's asking these questions. So Du Bois is going around to all of these households. He visits every household in mm-hmm. Doherty County, Georgia. Every black household, excuse me. Visits every black household and asks them about property ownership. He's trying to do a survey of how much property black people own. So he's very interested in this topic. Mm-hmm. And what he discovers over and over again is, yes, there's property ownership, but discovers over and over again the ways in which black people have been, like... Cheated out of their land. Cheated out of land. Yeah, I mean, it, th- it makes me think actually a lot about um, lots of places in Latin America, which is my area of specialization. And, I mean, you get people like this guy. We, I think we talked about him in a different podcast, but Hernando de Soto who talked a lot about how basically the ways in which poor people and mm-hmm. in the Latin American case, often indigenous peoples, right, mm-hmm. are basically cheated out of land um, yeah. in all many kinds of ways, right? Because <clears throat> they don't have access. And this guy cheated out of pay. Right. Not right. even land, right? But just right. like cheated out of pay. Yeah. Right. And part of what. Well, and just like completely abused, like, yeah. right, not just cheated out of pay, but then like have his shit stolen and like, I mean, just beyond, right? Like, mm-hmm. and like, really, does that guy need that? No, definitely not. Like, mm-hmm. didn't need this poor man's furniture. Like, well, the sheriff took the furniture, not sales. Well, nobody needed the damn furniture. <laughs> well, he did. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> the, the man. Like, like, a bit. Yeah. So, what a, one of the things that, I think is relevant here and part of the whole setup and part of why we get these scenes of Southwest Georgia is that Du Bois is describing a place that's remote from any cent from any city, mm-hmm. from any center. And that basically no one knows what's happening, right? Correct. Yeah. Like even Northern reformers who really care about the status of black people. Right. Really don't know anything about Southwest Georgia. Right. Mm-hmm. And that what it looks like actually on the ground in southwest rural Georgia is mind-boggling. Right. Right? And Du Bois sets about trying to document all of that in statistical terms. Some of this stuff he's writing reports for for the Department of Labor. And I think that this is, this is helpful. This kind of stuff is helpful because what Du Bois shows over and over again, and you'll see this if you click the links that are on the slideshow, you'll see some of his data visualizations of the growth of black property ownership, right? And so even in this world, right? So just to go back to these points from the previous podcast about like 
perseverance uh, about like right. the strength of black communities is that what he documents is a huge growth in black property ownership, mm-hmm. despite all of these barriers. Despite yeah, all of these barriers, so right, they're like paying twice as much, surely, in the yes. way of like I don't mean just for the property, but for like the actual ability to like. Have it be right, you know. Well, that time I bought it and it was stolen. So then, when I bought it the second time, like, right, you right. know, right, exactly, exactly. So this yeah. chapter is just doing a really journalistic way of documenting this kind of perseverance, but also documenting. And this is the this is like that's the end of the chapter right there. Yeah, what yeah, you yeah. Just read, yeah. Right. Yep. Well, I mean, I also think even when you think about liberal reformers or whatever, the work you know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and the work that I did where. Um, uh, in in a r- very rural, remote area, and where even when people, the sort of people from afar, would come to like look at the situation, if you just even even if you like made your way out to like some part of the rural South, that usually these are like visits that are very orchestrated, and like you go to one place and one leader talks to you, and like it's so easy to get a skewed picture of what's happening when you're not right. actually doing this kind of hard work and when there doesn't exist any kind of data for you to actually look at, like, mm-hmm. you know, when there is no, oh, X many people were, like, screwed out of their land or, you know, like, not given their wages and, right. you know, like, that you actually can't systematically see that, even if you, like, parachute in, like, the likelihood that you're able to, like, and have the, like... um I can only think of the word in Spanish, but the like the the rapport to like actually have people tell you that, right? Like, right. you know, where, you know, in some of these communities in the South, like in my experience anyway, people aren't always keen to talk to a Mm-mm. stranger. I mean, but pleasantries and lemonade, but like if you're going to be like... I love the scene there. The, the, yeah, you're going to ask like some random person about their like experience with land ownership. Like, you know, I mean, it's going to take a little more, I think, than... Mm-hmm. Like a stranger coming down from like out of town, and I don't know, you, yeah. you know. So anyway, I just think it's. I mean, so, it, it was it was a tremendous amount of work for him for Du Bois to do those projects, and then also had to establish, mm-hmm. you know, rapport. Yeah, he spent all summer, spent all summer every summer yeah, while he was at around. Atlanta University going around. All right, all right. So now so we're now moving we're on to the a next new, chapter. Onto a new chapter, page one thirty three. The point I have insisted upon and now emphasize again is that the best opinion of the South today is not the ruling opinion, that to leave the Negro helpless and without a ballot today is to leave him not to the guidance of the best, but rather to the exploitation and debauchment of the worst, that this is no truer of the South than of the North, of the North than of Europe. In any land, in any country, under modern free competition, to lay any class of weak and despised people, be they white, black, or blue, at the political mercy of their stronger, richer, and more resourceful fellows is a temptation which human nature seldom has withstood and seldom will withstand. Mm. Indeed. Yeah, so what what are you getting out of that one? What's that saying to you? What is it well, saying to us? I think a little bit it's a, I mean, it's generalizing from the specific case, right? Which is mm-hmm. sort of like he's making a generalization here that mm-hmm. that this is actually not, I mean, in a way he's, I mean, in a way he's like saying that this isn't just a character flaw 
of Southern racists, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. this is, like, going to be the case if you set up the institution. I mean, I like this because I'm a comparativist, and I think a lot about institutions, yes. right? Um, I knew you'd like this If one. you think about, like, the structural conditions that are set here, I mean, he then goes into human nature, which is, you know, that's more of sure. a, like, I wouldn't go that way, but right in the sense that, like, I mean, structurally, you've just organized things for some class of people to be taken advantage of. And so that this isn't unique to the South, that this will and does happen wherever you have structural relations that put one sort of group of people, whoever they are, whether that's racially defined or not, on top of another. Right. Now, I think this is interesting because we were talking last time about how what a not Marxist Du Bois is. Right, right? yeah, yeah. And here, though, there's a little bit more of of a more class analysis. Certainly, yeah. Though, though he has throughout been layering on top of this a kind of racial analysis. So, in other words, I guess what I'm driving at here is that we can see a little bit of like a proto-intersectionality Absolutely. In, yeah. in Du Bois's thought. Obviously, again, just like with microaggressions, Du Bois would have no concept of the of right, intersectionality or whatever. Concept, yeah. um, but I think it's just important to point out here that, that Du Bois, from what I said last time about how Du Bois thinks that racial conflict is driving history, it doesn't mean that he's exclusively focused on that and is like ignorant about the way that class dynamics right. and class domination Matter. also matters in this story, right? And that, like, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be an either or, basically. Right, right. Yeah, I thought you'd think that was a fun one. Yeah. That was okay. really, I like that, one. that was for you. Thank you, thank you. Um, all right, page 137. Now, if one notices carefully, one will see that between these two worlds, despite much physical contact and daily intermingling, there is almost no community of intellectual life. This one was for me. <laughs> or point of transference where the thoughts and feelings of one race can come into direct contact and sympathy with the thoughts and feelings of the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like this one a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this one sounds like that there's so much segregation mm -hmm. either when even even when you think you're together, kind of, right? Right. And, and uh, read the first part of that again, I think. Now, if one notices carefully, one will see that between these two worlds, despite much physical contact and daily intermingling, mm -hmm. there was almost no community of intellectual life okay. or point of transference. Okay. So what that means, if there's no community of intellectual life, what that means is that even at the most elite levels, there's very little, and maybe especially at the most elite levels, there's very little intermingling of white and black people in communities of, of real, genuine contact and fellowship. Right. Right, well, I think he's, like, separating out the intermingling from what would be in true community. Yes, right? absolutely. Like, Absolutely. So I don't think he would call that intermingling. Right, that's what Howard just Thurman like, would later call contact without fellowship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Now read the, read, oh, go ahead. And you I mean, maybe also, I was just going to say that, I mean, it's unclear here. I mean, and presumably he's, well, I don't know what he's, I guess he could be talking about the North too. This isn't necessarily just about the South. 
But I mean, you think, I mean, he probably, I mean, I don't know when he was at Harvard there where you said he was, were there any other, I mean, how much, what was the population of black people? You can probably count them on one hand. I don't know. I don't know the, right. off the I mean, top of my head. I mean, because when I'm sort of thinking about this, that there's like, some of this is like intermingling without that, whatever you just said, the Thurman quote, which is like the true with like the, the contact, without, contact without, fellowship. without fellowship. But like in some of these particular communities, there may not even be much contact, right? So it's yeah. like, yes, maybe you see the like, the like, I mean, I don't know what it would be in the in the north, but like in the south, like maybe you see like the person that's gonna come and like, I don't know what would be in the like southern in the elites houses that they're gonna have maids that mm -hmm, are mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. black women that are gonna be nannies or mm -hmm. right that they're gonna be mm -hmm. in a in a way like a very deep part of daily life, but then you know not. He's got this great image uh, where he's talking about the south, where he's got this great image where he says. You know, you can find yourself walking down the street in the South, and you're surrounded, you're surrounded by white and black people. Mm -hmm. But you, you start to notice that despite the fact that you're surrounded by white and black people, there is a kind of segregation. And as the day begins to dim, uh -huh. you start to notice that these two streams that have been intermingling on the street right. suddenly go their separate ways in a very orderly fashion, and any rule that's broken is quickly punished, right? Like, it's a, it's a really, right. really great passage. It's just a couple paragraphs before yeah, yeah. what you were reading there that I think is really, really a nice description of exactly what you were right. saying. Right, so there's some of it is like that there's actually not the true meaningful physical communities where these, mm -hmm. you know, and then I think some probably must... Also, I mean, I, I can't imagine Du Bois's experience wouldn't also involve that, like, here he is, he breaks into, like, Harvard, right? But then, like, how much he must feel in some of those circumstances, surely not everyone, but, mm -hmm. like, isolated and not yes. actually, like, like, that it's still just intermingling without. Yeah, go ahead and read the next one. Go ahead and read the next one. The next one you'll like, too. All right, 139. Human advancement is not a mere question of almsgiving, but rather of sympathy and cooperation among classes who would scorn charity. And here is a land where, in the higher walks of life, in all the higher striving for the good and noble and true, the color line comes to separate natural friends and coworkers, while at the bottom of the social group, in the saloon, the gambling hall, and the brothel, that time, oh, that timeline wavers and disappears. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So among the educated classes, among the elites, among the people who think the most about reform. It's more segregated. It's even more segregated than there at the bottom of the social heap. Right. Which I think is a really, it's, it's a really powerful part of Du Bois. And I think it's a part of Du Bois that, especially in these early years, is... Um, in, in the early years of Du Bois's writing is noticed, but people notice what a middle class thinker he is and how focused he is on the problems mm -hmm. and travails of the black middle class. People have noticed that, uh, scholars of Du Bois. And many scholars of Du Bois, contemporary scholars of Du Bois, hold this against him. Right. That he's too bourgeois, that he's, you know, he's not, sensitive enough to, that he's an elitist with this talented 10th nonsense and that blah, 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 blah. But I think one of the things that is not noticed in that 
is the intense pain of the experience mm -hmm. of the black middle class. That what he's describing is this intense experience of like, like we're on the same team. We're natural friends and coworkers. Right. And no one can do anything other than talk to me about how it feels to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to talk about fucking Aristotle with you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to talk about Aurelius and Shakespeare. And you're over here, like, talking to me about Mechanicsville. Right. And these things, like, right, right. oh, my God. Like, could we just talk about something else? Right. We have a lot in common. Right. We could be friends. Right. Right. Cool, cool. And you just want to talk to me about whether I can get a sunburn. Right, right. right. Or don't oh even God. want to but are uncomfortable or whatever. I don't know whether he ever diagnoses in any of these passages the sort of what he thinks is at the root of some of well, that. Well, he says later, he says, you know, my problem in my early years, in his later autobiographies, uh -huh. he says, you know, my problem was that I didn't read enough Marx and I didn't read enough Freud. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right? That's that. That's the, what I was looking for, yeah. right? Where the whoever, right? Yeah. Well, like that sort of. Yeah. So what I, exactly he thinks is happening in these conversations where people are. So I like this. this because part of also what I like about what Du Bois is saying here when he's talking to these middle class audiences is he's like, you know what would be really nice reform is like maybe have some relationships. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. Maybe we could just like maybe you could like figure out how to be in an authentic community mm -hmm. that was interracial. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you could work on that and maybe that would be reform right interesting thought right i think it's something that doesn't get i don't think that that's something that gets picked up on enough in mm -hmm. early du bois scholarship so that's why i flag it here it's a little bit of a mm -hmm. hobby horse of mine all right page 152 today the two groups of negroes the one in the north we are in a new chapter about the negro church about black churches oh okay sorry Today, the two groups of Negroes, the one in the North, the other in the South, represent these divergent ethical tendencies, the first tending toward radicalism, the other toward hypocritical compromise. It is no idle regret with which the white South mourns the loss of the old-time Negro, the frank, honest, simple old servant who stood for the earlier religious age of sub submission and humility. Right. So this is the black church in the South is a church of people who put on an act of servility. Because he says, you know what the thing about the black church is? The black church since slavery has always been a radical organization. Mm -hmm. Up through abolition, it became a highly radicalized church. And so you can't think about the black church without thinking about it as a political organization. Uh -huh. It's impossible to think about it otherwise. It's not just church. Right. right? It's, right. These, are, these are small governments. Right, right? sure. And so he, he just says that straight up. And so he says here about the Southern church is that it affects this kind of servility because the Southern church plays the role that black people were expected to play in right. the South. And that Southern black religion is like this. He calls it a hypocritical compromise. Right. And he says that most leaders in the black church are, they get really good at lying. Right. Well, really I good. think about when I, it made me think back. I taught part of Frederick Douglass's autobiography, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean, there's some of that about. I feel like that was like some of it about the reproduction of some of those sort of behaviors of servility. I think 
that were coming out of the church. And, you know, it was like his experience. I believe what we were reading was like as a child where, of course, right, right. Of course, you're going to have people like church leaders that are going to be like trying really hard to get children to act uh-huh. according to the ways that are going to keep them safe mm-hmm. and right, right you know so that kind of hypocritical what do you call it hypocritical compromise right you know no. it was like if this is your kind of political leader that there's a, you know whatever else is happening you're trying to also keep your flock safe you know now Du Bois of course thinks that this is maybe a mistake sure not only I mean you can tell that because he calls it hypocritical mm-hmm. compromise but also he thinks that it's a little bit, it's a little dangerous to habituate people into deception like that. Right, yeah, That yeah, you yeah. lose a bit of, well, you lose a little bit of your political power. You lose a little bit of your radicalization. It becomes a more, like, it's just not going to be as effective. These are, again, these are political organizations always striving for black liberation, he says. Right. Well, and I mean, if you think about, we were just talking about this the other night about institutions basically being sticky and sometimes outliving their purposes, uh-huh. right? So, I mean, if you think about the black church such as it was able to exist during slavery. In the South. In the South. Versus then what is, you know... How it how it changes over the next, you know, in this period that Du Bois is talking about. I don't know. I guess I could see like it's like one thing to, in a this like extraordinarily repressive context to be able to just exist is a radical mm-hmm. act. And mm-hmm. so like this idea of like a hypocritical compromise doesn't seem to apply as much when you're. I mean, if you were in any way openly radical during slavery, that that would be the end of that, right? That would be I mean, the end of that. Well, um, and I think about churches in authoritarian contexts all over, right, where this is like always sort of straddling this line of. Go ahead and sure. read the next one. Go ahead and read the next one. This is about the Northern okay. Church. So this is the next page, one fifty-three. On the other hand, in the North, the tendency is to emphasize the radicalism of the Negro, driven from his birthright in the South by a situation at which every fiber of his more outspoken and assertive nature revolts. He finds himself in a land where he can scarcely earn a decent living amid the harsh competition and the color discrimination. At the same time, through schools and periodicals, discussion and lectures, he is intellectually quickened and awakened. The soul, long pent up and dwarfed, suddenly expands in newfound freedom. Right. So the northern church is in this more intellectual milieu Right. Uh-huh. It's not as so. Du Bois, his first job after he got his PhD at Harvard was teaching at. Um, well, his first job was at uh, I think actually it was at Wilberforce University in Ohio. That was his first job. He did that before he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and he he was in rural Ohio and he hated it. Mm-hmm. And what he hated about it so much was that it was a Methodist college, and that they always had these revivals. He just could <laughs> not stand this like country emotional religion <laughs> right he's like i'm from new england right i'm like i was in the i was raised in the congregationalist church like i don't understand what you people are doing like this is it's hilarious bizarre yeah and he he loved he loved saint philip's episcopal church in washington dc that had this like extremely cerebral intellectual right preacher. obviously it was like not surprising right and so so he's like that's if every black church were like St. Philip's in Washington, D.C., then the race would be saved, right? right? right. 
Like, yeah, that's yeah. what he says. It's one of his essays. Something along those lines. It's not exactly that, right? So this is part of the world that, this is like part of the backdrop and the context of Du Bois's thought here. Like he's really skeptical of this kind of like um, more emotive religion. He's right. really, he, right. he, what, he, what he really likes is this Northern religion where they're like, you know, like it's not, they're not just getting exposed to religion. Like they're going to talks right. at Harvard, right. Right? right? Like they're in Boston. Right, and so yeah. their religion is is being augmented by other intellectual inputs, and, yeah, and 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 that's what part of what makes it more radical is that it's more for Du Bois. It satisfies the real parts of the human soul rather than this kind of like Southern clowning right. that he sees in um, Southern religion. So read the last one on the um, about religion. I think you'll find this really interesting. All right, page one fifty four. Someday the awakening will come when the pent-up vigor of 10 million souls shall sweep irresistibly toward the goal, out of the valley of the shadow of death, where all that makes life worth living, liberty, justice, and right, is marked for white people only. Right. So what is the, this is, the, this is how the chapter on black religion ends. It reminds me of the chapter, the ending of chapter two, with mm -hmm. the figure, yeah. bowed and veiled figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's saying that, well, the Southern Church may be, you know, may look one way now, but, um, well, not mm -hmm. forever. Right. And it does seem like these churches may be awakened. Right. And I thought I like this a lot because Du Bois is writing this in 1903, right? Mm -hmm. And like the role that Southern churches played in civil rights, right, right, 50 years later, right, becomes Was very important, very important, right? <laughs> yes. And Du Bois is like, I mean, these are political mm -hmm. organizations always seeking black liberation, mm -hmm. and at some point there's some going point, to be 10 million souls. There, I, what I I love about this is that it's like. We're gonna have a second grade. We're gonna have a third grade awakening, mm -hmm. like this New England guy, right? Like, right. all familiar with this sort of language of of evangelicalism uh, of a northern kind. Right, is like there's gonna be a third great awakening. Mm -hmm. You thought the burned over district was something, mm -hmm. like it's right. It's coming to the south too. Right. See what happens then. So that's that's the chapter on the black church. Okay. Okay. What are we on next? What's the next chapter? Last chapter. We only have a couple things left. The last chapter is a very poignant chapter. It's very, um, I, I don't want to call it melodramatic because it is, it is heartfelt. It's called Of the Passing of the Firstborn, and it's Du Bois talking about the death of his son. Oh, well. When he was a baby. Just We've got a lot more veils in here. There's been a lot of veil references. They were born with a veil. Black people were born with the veil mm -hmm. as a people, so they're always veiled. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah, it's everywhere. Gifted with the second sight. Mm -hmm. Which is this? This part has something to do with the second sight. This is a this this is a tragic chapter. It's very, I mean, it's very nineteenth century. It's very Victorian in the prose, but like, it's some sad shit. Well, I mean, I can't even. Imagine. His baby died. I right? can't. I mean, even. his baby died. I cannot even. No. All right, page 159. All that day and all that night, there sat an awful gladness in my heart, 
Nay, blame me not if I see the world thus darkly through the veil. And my should whispers, even my should, my should. My soul, maybe. Maybe. My soul whispers even to me, saying, not dead, not dead, but escaped, not bond, but free. No bitter meanness now shall sicken his baby heart. Till to die a living death, no taunt shall madden his happy boyhood. Yeah. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. And it's, like, sad that his comfort is that he doesn't have to live yeah. in a racist society. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess that the comfort is that... Yeah. Yeah, that the grief, this, like, well, this huge human experience. Yeah. Right? is overlaid also with him viewing himself through the eyes of, like, viewing himself as a Negro, right? And to go back to the language of the first chapter. Right, yes. Right? That here he's seeing himself with double sight. Here's double right. consciousness at that moment. Right. Right? That it, 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 and that it never goes, like, this is the whole part where, like, it never goes away. You right. live with the double consciousness, even at these moments where you would expect to just be right. a human. Yeah. You are a human, but you're a particular kind of human who is gifted and cursed with second with the second sight. Right. Right? Ugh. Yeah. Just tragic. Very tragic. It's, I mean, almost hard to get through. Yeah. No, for sure. Also because of all the typos, but... <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't, this is all some, right, all right, all right. Some emotion. All right. All right, all right. I'm just going to assume that you were trying to discharge the, the, emotion, the heavy emotion heavy there emotion, with that barb. Heavy emotion. All right, read the last one. Same page. <clears throat> this is even, uh, yeah, well, keep, you just read it. Surely there shall yet dawn some mighty morning to lift the veil and set the prison free. Not for me. I shall die in my bonds. But for fresh young souls who have not known the night and wake into the morning. A morning when men ask of the workman, not is he white, but can he work? Some morning this may be long, long years to come. But now there wails on that dark shore within the veil the same deep voice, thou shalt forego. And all have I foregone at that command, and with small complaint. All save that fair young form that lies so coldly wed with death in the nest I had builded. Yeah. So another element of second sight here, right? Which is that the, the um, experience for Du Bois of fatherhood is also an experience of like wondering and hoping like, we hope all kinds of things for our children. Certainly, yes. Right? But Du Bois here is, like, hoping that part of the experience of black fatherhood, or parenthood, whatever, is this hope of, like, maybe maybe it'll be my children. Right. That, that can get free. Right. Yeah. Right? And that, like, so that this, so that, I, I like this chapter because I think it, it's, it's the part where you see the stakes of what it is to live with second sight mm -hmm. to what, it, what the double consciousness like well, actually the, looks like and feels it's like the flip side of the one that we just read. Right. Which is the, like, at least he is free from 
the racism that I know he will experience, right? right? And then the second one is like almost like, but it's like the sadness of like maybe he would have actually, what if the world changed in his lifetime, which it won't in mine. And that had enabled him to actually and then know for freedom. And boys in this right? moment, it's almost like the, the the death of his son is almost like the death of his hope. At the end, yeah. Right? That like that like the removal of his child from the world is the removal of the possibility that he will have given birth to the generation that gets free. Yeah, yeah. Right? So there's like a grieving not just for the child, but for the entire for his own hope. But then the very human, but it ends with the very human mm-hmm. part, right? That's mm-hmm. like not mm-hmm. the part that's about like the, the yes. part that's like he flips back to just to being I'm a dad. Just a dad, and like you know, I've like suffered all this fucking bullshit for my entire life with no with small complaint, right? And then this, right? So I mean, I feel like that there's also like I mean, I see your point of like it's going back and forth between yes. that like. Yes the human and then the like the kind of uh more specifically like black analysis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right yeah that you're constantly navigating between yeah. viewing yourself as a black person in america and just trying to be a human right or right? just being a human just being like a, right? not, you're not trying right? to be I a, mean, right? like, but that you're constantly moving back and forth right. and that that's double consciousness right and that it's everywhere right that it's it, you're never free from it mhm Right, even with this powerful, all-consuming emotion of grief, right, like nothing could be larger, right, right, nothing could be larger right. than watching your child die, yeah, like nothing, right, right, and that even there, yeah, you're still like you can't just be like, a, yeah, you, know, you can't just be grieving, yeah. Yeah, or you can, but it looks this one way, right? Like that, it's like all right, all right, 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 because it's existing it's simultaneously, right. right? That it's like you are, you are both, right? You are just human grieving, and you are also experiencing it as this body situated in space and time and like skin and class and so what like, it's like and behind it's the like, veil. Yeah, this is what it's like behind the veil, gentle reader. That's what. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. It's so raw in that. I mean, yeah. as raw as Du Bois gets, like, it's fucking Florida shit, but like. Yeah. No, <laughs> still, I mean, it's, it's heavy. Like, whatever. I mean, maybe it's, it's just because COVID, but I mean, I could weep through the whole this sure. last two cards. I mean, sure, sure. I think I told you about this that I read, there was a recent article that someone had written about this, about this chapter that was like really critical of Du Bois in all you kinds of ways. You punch them? <laughs> yes. I absolutely was like so mad after I read this article. <laughs> I was so furious. I was like, yeah, like it had all kinds of things about like, about uh, back of this thing about like his sort of like bourgeois normative masculinity or something like this, right? And like all of it. And I was just like, dude, like why you got to pick on this chapter? Yeah. Like why are you hitting this? Like, okay, I'll grant you all of that stuff. But yes, like yes. this chapter, yeah. like whoa, like give the guy a break, man. In this chapter, like, like, going toxic masculinity a, on like pick the, a like, different chapter, you know? Yeah, uh, Sorry, yeah it just really, it really was a funny. It was funny to read that article yeah, and get so mad. Yeah, it was funny to get mad about an interpretation of W. E. B. Du Bois, but like that's 
that's that's how I roll. How you um, roll. All right. So that takes us through the, the the main reading of all the reading of uh, Souls of Black Folk. It's a great book. Du Bois is great. I hope that you have. Um, I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you have a little bit more. Um, you know, motivation to read more widely in Du Bois. Whatever you're looking for, in, I mean, he lived a long time, 1868 to 1963. He died in Ghana after renouncing his U.S. citizenship after, I didn't mention this, that like his passport gets denied in 1951 when he's trying to go to a peace conference in Canada. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's just like, you know what, like, I'm fucking done. Fuck <laughs> like, I'm out of here. So uh, he goes to, he goes to uh, Ghana mm-hmm. and um, lives there for a couple of years before he dies in 1963. His death is announced at the March on Washington. Um, That's wild. Right. In uh, the 1963 March on Washington. Mm-hmm. Right. Just before I have a dream is given. Yeah. Right. Like dude is there when Max Weber gives his talk on the Protestant work ethic and the dude's spirit is hovering over the March on Washington. Like. That's wild. What a life. Right. So I hope you read more Du Bois. Like it's all really good. Whatever you're looking for in Du Bois' canon you can find. Um, yeah. It's great stuff. And um it's been a good semester. This is, I think, the last time we'll talk. Yeah, thanks for uh, letting me join your, your class, guys. All right, everyone, be well. Uh, have a great summer. Take See care. See you on the flip. Kiss me once, oh, kiss me twice. Give me a taste of paradise. I don't want the blues always on. Get me a cold beer as I get older. Oh, my stars, how you are me. Oh, my stars, oh, my stars, how you Going down in the sky, different colors. Baby, run, see all the different hues. I feel alright, but these times are bad. Mama, run here, help me with these blues. Oh, my stars, how you are to me. Oh, my stars. Spider going up the wall. 
in that triple on the mighty top. He learned in them ladies, the old spider rock. Oh, my stars, you.